if you have a view of something that that is a contrarian view but it makes sense to you mm-hmm. just pursue it but then you need to be very resilient and, and long-term focused Mercado Libre is Latin America's top online marketplace company, valued at $28 billion. At its roots are three friends who met at Stanford GSB in 1999. In this View from the Top speaker series, the founders of Mercado Libre discuss the team dynamics of starting a company with classmates and the contrarian views that ultimately led to their success. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for the first View from the Top of the Year. Marcos, Hernan, Staleo, we are excited that you could help kick it, off, kick it off for us during your 20th year reunion, no less. Actually, I believe the class of 1999 is in the building. Can you guys make some noise so we know you still, still got it? Okay, they still got it. So I thought we could start by taking a brisk walk down memory lane. I've prepared a little flashback Friday photo of you guys. Can we cue that photo, please? (laughs) Do we have the the other one? This is an early Mercado Libre team shot circa 1999. What I love about this one is, as you guys can see, startup founder co-fashion hasn't really evolved since then. So ache for consistency. Okay, we are going to jump right in because we have three times as much wisdom to extract today. I want to start by talking through your academic and career journeys. You each have very unique paths that led you to Mercado Libre and beyond. Marcos, we'll start with you. You have a background in finance and economics with a degree from the Wharton School, but you also almost played professional rugby. So tell us what was going on there. You passed up the opportunity to play for the national team. Is it because you knew you were destined for entrepreneurship? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think it's probably because I knew I wasn't going to be that good of a rugby player. <laughs> okay, Hernan, you did brand management at Procter & Gamble, financial analysis at the UN, co-founded Mercado Libre, then started a VC firm. What did you want to be when you grew up, and what was the moment that you figured out, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? I think uh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but it was something that I imagined it happening later in my okay. life. And I think that being here at Stanford at that particular moment in time, also having met Marcos and everything, accelerated that probably 20 years and ended up happening right after graduation. Can you tell us a story? How did you all meet? So we remember? Well, and I met before Stanford, <laughs> oh, okay. actually. Uh, and we became friends here at, at school. I mean, we were always... Uh, with a group of Latin Americans always discussing about the things that we should be doing about mm. the internet, this internet thing that was uh, starting. And obviously, no one was ever doing anything. At, at some point in time, we said, "Let's why don't we just go and do it? We're also arguing about soccer and which <laughs> was the best. Yeah. A bit of that going on as well, I should say, as a token Brazilian here. We no longer discuss that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> So, Leo, you have the highest number of Stanford degrees on this stage. <laughs> Can you tell us about the inspiration um, for moving from the technical world to the world of business management and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I was um, really thinking about finance through, 
through before coming to Stanford, during Stanford, and, and after Stanford, mm. uh, the way I got to, to Mercado Livre was uh, through a casual meeting with Marcos uh, at Lehman Brothers, of all places. Uh, three months after uh, graduating from, from Stanford, he was visiting, he was fundraising already, oh, wow. and, and we met, and I was convinced by, by his passion, um, the passion that he had to, to build this company. I called him. Uh, and three weeks later, I uh, and my wife, who's here, uh, moved from New York to Sao Paulo uh, to start the business there in, in Sao Paulo. So today we're going to dig deep into themes of entrepreneurship and adversity. But first, I want to start by taking us back to where it all began. So it's the spring of 1999. Ricky Martin is an international sensation. <laughs> the Euro was just invented. It's overall a really good year, especially because the idea for Mercado Libre was just born. Now it's a huge success. It was worth almost 28 billion as of the last time I checked this morning. Um, but can you take us back to day zero and how did you get from day zero to day one? What were some of the baby steps that you took to execute while you were still students on campus leading up to graduation? Well, f first I spent a lot, of, a lot of time in the library and that's where Stelio became suspicious because he wasn't used to seeing me at the library. <laughs> but the, the second time he saw me at the library, he said, I, I think you're, you're planning something. Planning <laughs> something. <laughs> that, that's a true story, by the way. And uh, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, obviously took the opportunity to, uh, to, to drive John Muse to the airport, as, as Dean mm -hmm. uh, Levin was just saying, and, uh, and was able to get some soft commitments to starting the, the business. Then I convinced Hernan to start work. Hernan was going to be the CEO of another startup, and I told him, why don't you just do the marketing plan for me? I knew that he, he would have, he, once I got him in, he would never leave. So I <laughs> had to convince him some way or another. And uh, yeah, so I tried to assemble the team and do as much research and try to get as much uh, commitments to funding as possible. Okay. And it couldn't have been easy starting a company as students. I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the team dynamics of starting a company with your classmates. I know many of us are in this situation right now, or at least considering it, and we're having very, very tough conversations. So can you please tell us, how did you decide who was going to be CEO? What was that equity split conversation like? What were those dynamics? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I warned him ahead of time about tough questions. So, uh, no, in our case, it was it was a, it, the, the first part, which I think is is the most important part. Is you need to get along very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hernan, myself, and Martin de los Santos, who's here. I mean, who's there and is also working with us. Uh, we 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 always hanged out together, and we had we had a we spent a lot of time together. So, so I knew that it was going to work uh, well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you need to, to start a company, obviously with somebody who complements you, mm -hmm. but also someone who you get along well with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the equity split, et cetera, there are different kind of uh, solutions. In our case, I mean, I started it, and then I, and then I was going to be CEO of a different company. I convinced him to do the marketing plan, et cetera, and then we agreed on, a, on an equity package. Uh, Let's say you shouldn't do what our competitors from Harvard did. That they were ten guys and they split in one tenth, uh, ten percent each. So each each one had ten percent of the company, and it didn't work out very well for them. It's tell not. us more about those Harvard competitors. I let Hernan. Hernan, tell us that part of the story. I know you love this story, <laughs> Hernan. No, it was interesting because if there's one thing that we were not 
uh, was very innovative, mm -hmm. the idea, because at the time we launched Mercado Libre, there were like 80 other companies throughout Latin America, more or less following the same business model. Uh, I think that the difference uh, in the case of Mercado was you know, long-term vision, assembling a great team, the kind of commitment that that team had, et cetera, but, but not the idea per mm -hmm. se. Uh, and in particular, there was this other a team from Harvard that started right at the same time. It's a funny story because we organized our launching ceremony in Buenos Aires, and just out of coincidence, those guys had cool. reserved the same place the following day or the day before. I don't remember how it was, uh, and they were sure that we did that on purpose, but it was just a, a coincidence. Uh, and we started competing. They ended up raising initially more capital than we did. So uh, they had some advantage, but their focus was more on, on, on marketing or on, on trying really to uh, hit uh, some initial milestones and go mm -hmm. uh, public very soon, while ours was, was more around trying to build the technology, trying to bring, build organic uh, engines for, for growth, and, and ended up paying out uh, well. In particular, when uh, at the time we started Mercalier was when everything was really colorful, then everything went into gray mm -hmm. uh, after the, the bubble burst. Uh, and that's when, when you started to see the big, big difference between the, the two teams. And a few years later, we ended up buying uh, that company at, at a fraction of the capital they had uh, raised in the market. So Stanford, Harvard. There you go. <laughs> I want to get your, your thoughts on the team dynamics because as MBAs, we often hear that we're too type A and you shouldn't start a company with multiple MBA co-founders because it'll be too intense. What was it like for you joining the team and building a company with your friends? Yeah, no, I think it was a great experience. And for me, the fact that I was uh, in Brazil and I had a clear mandate, which was really to build uh, the business there uh, was gave me some leeway. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we, we interacted uh, a lot. Uh, so there's, there's balance there between having the chance to really hire my team, build my team, but also uh, work together with, with my friends. Mm. So I want to stay on our GSB experience a little bit because I think it's so relevant to many of us here. Stileo, what specifically in those two years really shaped you as a business leader? What did you experience? What did you learn? Yeah, so I, I typically, when I speak to, uh, to students, say, don't follow my example, Okay. Uh, which is good. I mean, at least uh, it's something that people should learn, which is I, I was very much focused on finance. I came okay. uh, to Stanford already with a background in finance, but not with the, with the knowledge, with the theory. Uh, and so I took all finance classes, um, some really PhD level classes and the like, uh, and ended up uh, working my summer uh, in finance and then after school uh, as well. And don't do that, really. <laughs> Please don't. Uh, this, is, this is the chance for you to experiment, for you to go outside uh, what, what is your comfort zone, to try uh, different classes, uh, really learn skills that you don't have. But I think the most important thing uh, is, is uh, building relationships, and, mm. and, and that I did. Mm. Uh, and that's why we're here, I guess, telling exactly. the story. Um, Stileo just mentioned building relationships, and I know Dean told the story of how uh, Professor Jack McDonald really helped in the beginning. 
when you think about the people who had your back while you were here, who were those champions and how did you develop and cultivate those relationships over time? Well, obviously for me, uh, that class uh, from Jack McDonald was very important. I had used my silver bullet for, for his class. I, in those days, you had to use your, a silver bullet. And, uh, you know, I, I spent most of my time here uh, going to class. I, I really enjoyed going to class, but I didn't spend that much time, you know, studying for exams and things like that. So I, at the library. I, I, or at the <laughs> library. So I really enjoyed it because Jack McDonald would bring uh, amazing guests uh, to his. That's why I use his the silver bullet, and uh, so I, I would always sit in the front, uh, in the front row, and, and, and we had, once I got into the class and it was uh, early, I always got in early to get in the front row, and, and there was a, a guy sitting in, in just in the, in the table, and he told me, and it was just him and me for like two, three minutes, and he said, I'm Joe Doe, I just dressed up like Warren Buffett today. <laughs> and I had no idea who he was, so I, I didn't understand the joke either. And the guy was Warren Buffett. <laughs> Okay. And I was, I, was, I was looking for funding for my company. So, so, so then eventually all my, our classmates started to walk in. I, I realized everybody recognized the guy and the class started. It was a great class. And then after the class, so I told Jack McDonald, Jack, you know, I'm, I, I want to do this startup. I'm looking for someone to fund this, this company. And I spent three minutes with Warren Buffett alone in the class and I wasn't even able to <laughs> pitch him. You know, I, 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 next time. <laughs> <clears throat> Next time someone now like this know. comes over, yeah. you know, let me know. You know I, I, will, <laughs> I will attend your classes anyhow. You know, I, I'm always there in the front row. And he said, he said don't worry, you know, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have invested anyhow. He doesn't invest in Latin America. But these guys, they have lots of investments in Latin America. I will tell this guy about you during lunch, and I will set you up to, to drive him to the airport That's after amazing. class. So that, that relationship with Jack McDonald really worked out uh, very well for me. That's amazing. Yeah. Hernan, what were your most salient GSB memories of support and rejection? Those are two incredibly common and useful experiences for self-growth, but I don't think the latter is often discussed. So please share with us. I think in general it's uh, an amazing, amazing uh, experience. For me it was very eye-opening in all senses in terms of meeting uh, these many people with such uh, great uh, ambitions, uh, really uh, amazing. Uh, and also for us, uh, it was, at, again, at a very particular moment in time, mm -hmm. we basically presented us to, to the technology opportunity that was happening here and, and made us realize that nobody knew anything about the internet, so we were all starting in a level playing field and that gave uh, young uh, professionals with, with really lots of energy and willingness to change the world to, to start doing things uh, in any other industry would have been much more difficult. And I think that's why when I said I want to be an entrepreneur about 10 years, 20 years from now, it's because I thought you needed first to, to build something uh, and, and that is not what, what we needed. Um, but what I always regret uh, from my days here is, is that it was only a 24-hour day. <laughs> there were many things to, to do, uh, all the opportunities to be present with speakers, with, in, in classes with amazing professors, discussing things with classmates, uh, and you could not uh, do all of them. Mm. It's, a, it's a challenge, so, so at the end of the day, all opportunities are amazing, and it's about what you don't do. 
and, and how you, you make the best decisions based, based on that. And it's difficult. I think it's something that then as, as, as managers, as business leaders, we, we keep on facing uh, what, what not to do. Uh, um, so I think that that is what uh, I regret. Uh, I think in general it has been an, an amazing uh, experience and an incredible journey. And then to be here sharing this with, with some of our other classmates and, and current students is also incredible. I think it's, uh, I was telling earlier kind of a joke, but, but uh, I remember that I was in a very similar event with Steve Jobs. And now it's just the three of us here, so <laughs> <laughs> it got devalued as the Argentinian peso. But <laughs> <laughs> well, when you talk about that time that you were here at GSB, it seems like it was, you know, such the momentous, a momentous occasion and the time to really jump into entrepreneurship. At least that's what it seems. But Marcos, you have this great quote that says, they got tired of telling me that my idea was not going to work. Oh, yes. How did you find the tenacity to take that leap of faith despite overwhelming voices at the time telling you not to move back to Latin America after the GSB? Yeah. And what advice do you have for us, I'm looking at the MBA twos right now, who are gonna make similar decisions, many of which require us to go against the grain? Well, everybody, everyone here at the GSB, I asked all, all of the Latin students I knew and everybody said, this is never going to work in Latin America. Never in Latin America someone is gonna buy a product they haven't seen or touched to someone they don't know. That's that, because at that time, this was happening in, in Germany, in Japan, and in the US, this mm -hmm. type of business model. I said, you know, this is for this type of cultures. This, is, this won't work in our culture. And uh, I was convinced it was going to work, partly because uh, having been a Latin American who studied in the US, I, I realized how Latin Americans behave when they're in Latin America, but then how they behave when they are here in a system that works well. So I just knew that we needed to create a system that works well uh, with clear rules and you know, uh, regulations. And uh, I was convinced that that didn't discourage me at all. Actually, I was a little bit naive because I thought, this is great, everybody thinks it's not gonna work. There won't, there won't be that much competition, which as Hernan said before, was a mistake. There was a lot of competition. But I would say as an advice, I would uh, certainly uh, try to take risks. Uh, if you have a view of something that, that is a contrarian view, but it makes mm -hmm. sense to you, mm -hmm. just pursue it. But then you need to be very resilient and, and long-term focused. I mean, it, there's a lot of bumps down the road and you need to, you need to be very resilient because uh, it's very, you know, the, the bumps can be, can be very tough. Have a great team and that's what the relationships at the GSB for, for me and for us were amazing. I mean, we've mm -hmm. had, we still have many GSBers working for us for, for over 20, 20 years. Uh, so so uh, you need a great team because it's, you cannot do it alone. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's also more fun if you have a great team. Uh, but you know, try to be contrarian with a view that you really believe in and just take risks and, and hold on to it. And you could say that the contrarians held that view because they were thinking about the economic landscape of the market at the time or what they perceived were challenges. Today, when we look at Silicon Valley and other parts of the world, it's saturated with every type of startup under the sun. But when you guys started in Latin America, that was not the case. There wasn't really a big culture of tech entrepreneurship. VC dollars were not flowing the way they are flowing today. So how did you convince investors to give you money back then? How did you make decisions without not too much data? 
Yeah, it, it was hard. I mean, we, we started with VCs and, uh, and actually investment banks invested in us, which was a big problem later on because after the bubble burst, you know, we had the, some of them uh, got cold feet and they wanted to shut down the company. So we had to fight with our <coughs> shareholders not to shut down the company. We had to go to a, to a shareholder vote mm. and we were pretty close to losing that vote uh, because given that we had raised a lot of money and unlike our competitors, we hadn't spent that money, some of our shareholders said, let's shut down this company and take the money out and it's gonna be the only investment in which at least we will not have lost the money. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, when you, ha when you get investors that are not used to risk, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the best thing, but it's the only thing we could, we could get. Mm. Fortunately, now we have funds like Arnans that are funding lots of uh, entrepreneurs and, and Really, entrepreneurship has taken off, and there's, there are VCs, yeah. there are many organizations that help entrepreneurs. So it's a very different landscape today than, than what it was 20 years ago. Definitely. Sure. Well, if we fast forward, you just celebrated 20 years of Mercado Libre's success. And during that time, you navigated and thrived to, through multiple crises, both here in the States and in Latin America, even IPOing during one of those crises. And you were the first Latin American company to be listed on the NASDAQ. That's incredible. Stileo, what have been the values that you have held dear in the past two decades that have enabled you to brace the ups and downs of this time? Yeah, so I, I mentioned when I met Marcos that one time uh, at Lehman Brothers when I was uh, convinced that I wanted to join. Uh, there, was, there was passion uh, in his eyes. Uh, when I spoke to Hernan later, I also saw that same passion. And I think there is a sense of purpose in, in what we do. Uh, you know, we, we saw that technology was changing people's lives and it was going to change people's lives. I think what Marcos was saying, this sort of contrarian view was that um, there was going to be impact. Maybe the people that said no were the people that were just seeing things the way they were, they, yeah. they were um, back then. And, and we were seeing things sort of beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that sense of purpose, that technology can change people's lives when we think of what we do as, as an e-commerce marketplace, the number of entrepreneurs actually that uh, have built businesses on top of our platform we're now uh, also going into, into uh, FinTech, and uh, I think there's tremendous opportunity with, uh, with financial services, democratizing financial services. So those, those I think, are values that have kept us together and, and having that, that long-term vision as well. Hernan, you were at Mercado Libre and then you left to found Kazakh Ventures. When you look back at the last 20 years from, GSB, from your GSB time till now, what has been the single most difficult part of that journey? Difficult part, I think, uh, going back to a couple of instances in our Mercado Libre days, one was when we tried uh, to close our second round of mm -hmm. financing, which we ended up closing, but we closed that one in May 2000 and the bubble burst in March 2000. So I remember at the time we had like probably 10 term sheets or, or 10 investors really interested in investing in the company. And as days went by, uh, one investor will drop out and another one, another one, another one. And we ended up with one final investor that I remember organized a, a call with, with us to discuss the marketing plan of Uruguay, <laughs> which was a very tiny operation in, in Mercado Libre at the time. And it's weird, why, why do they want to do this? And, and we went into 
the meeting kind of hesitating what, what the heck we're going to say. And, and basically, those investors communicated they were, they were also dropping out. So we were left with, with nothing. Somehow, uh, I don't know, uh, it's one of those uh, games that you played 20 times and probably you end up losing most of them. But, but we turn it around, I think, again, in persistence and also some help from, from the investors that were inside the company at the time. Uh, we ended up closing that round. Uh, but that was a, a very tough uh, time for, for us. Remember that we used to uh, get in a room together and say, what the heck, what can we do? And then we would walk out of the room and say, hey, guys, everything is fine, let's go. <laughs> uh, or, or, or this it voting. It was terrible because also our competitors were doing a lot of marketing and they were... Everybody, even, even our friends, our competitors were called the remate. And even my friends would say, so how's the remate doing? And we were like, no, ours is Mercado Libre. So Arna and I would, we would lock up ourselves up in a room and we were like, okay, let's release our anguish now between us, you know? And then we would leave the room and everything is good, but it was... Uh, we were close around. <laughs> yes, it, was, it was very, very tough. I think that was a tough time. Then what Marcos described uh, of, of that voting... I think it was the only time the, the board uh, ever voted for something in Mercado Libre. So yeah. uh, we're kind of sleeping with the enemy. We were happy <laughs> that the company was evolving and our own shareholders wanted to shut it down. I want to dig deeper into the nuances of building a business in Latin America. Uh, we know now that there's so much opportunity. Mercado Libre has proved that. Kazakh Ventures has proved that, proven that. Um, but we also keep hearing about all of these challenges, perceived challenges. Which of these challenges would you say are myths that you're tired of hearing about? And which of those would you say, truly, these are aspects in which the region is still behind? I mean, I would say all the stereotypes are true. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to yeah. you know, change the narrative, but okay. All the challenges are there. No, it's true. I mean, Can you give us some examples? No, it's tough. It's very tough. Infrastructure is not as developed. Uh, um, you know, regulations are backwards. Uh, many times regulators are not thinking for the, for the benefit of, of the, most of the people. They're just trying to optimize. For, for themselves, or so, so it's very in, very, in very few times you encounter, uh, you know, uh, an environment which is very pro-business and pro-growth, uh, etc. Which you know, it's it's part of the game. So you need to deal with that. And uh, at the end of the day, if you are able to deal with that, the opportunity is still just as big. But you need to you need to understand that the. the environment is not necessarily a pro-business environment. And it changes, and it's very volatile. So all of a sudden, then you have elections, and a new government comes in, and it's great, and it lasts for a few years, and then a different government comes in, and they change everything. I would say, except for Chile, which is a country that has been very stable and uh, growing very, very well for many years, the rest of Latin America is, is very volatile, and uh, it's, it's challenging to do business there. I'd say the flip side to that is that it requires uh, you to have a lot of patience, a lot of resilience, because otherwise it would be easy and probably a lot of people would be uh, doing the same. So, so for us, having to deal with all that frustration of dealing with, uh, with government, with tax regimes, with unions, with all the difficulties we have makes it, makes it harder. It definitely seems like it is a lot harder than building a company here. What do you think the developed world can learn from startups and entrepreneurship in emerging markets? Phileo. 
Yeah, no, I think it has to do with, with, with that, that it's not, um, you know, a, a lot of companies that go into Latin America, mm -hmm. for example, they, they go with um, some ideas of how uh, things work in their home markets, and, and those aren't necessarily uh, the same. Uh, we, we say, I, I like to say that e-commerce, for example, is extremely local. Mm -hmm. um, you, need to, uh, you need to integrate with, with payment uh, providers uh, from, from each respective country, even for Mercado Libre, which is in 18 countries in Latin America. The fact that, that you integrate with Visa in Brazil means nothing for, for Visa in, in Argentina. You need to, to do something specific uh, in each of those markets. Logistics is very, uh, is very local. So, so, so the challenges are really not to just bring a model that works in your home market and, and expect it to, to work uh, locally. And I think that's true of all emerging markets. Mm. Hernan, can we get your opinion on this localization topic now that you are on the other side as an investor working with startups? What advantages does a local incumbent player have in the market when an international, you know, big, maybe Western player comes in? I'm thinking about Amazon's aggressive attempts to enter the region. Are there benefits unique to the indigenous players in these parts of the world? That's a central part of, of our investment strategy mm -hmm. in, in CASEC. Uh, we only invest in businesses where we think there are some, what we call local friction points. Mm -hmm. Something like what Stelio was describing because of payments or because of logistics or in FinTech because of regulation. Where, again, we're talking about technology, so there are no absolute advantages. So, so everything is very competitive. But, but at least if you are the local player and you know uh, how to operate logistics there or you know uh, how to get the approval from the central bank, uh, that gives you an edge versus the outside competitor that only has larger um, funds or, or economic capacity, but, but does not get that final point uh, so well. So, so it, it's harder yeah. to develop that if you are in the Bay Area or if you're in China or, or, or in other part of, of the world. It's, it's much easier to do it from, from a local perspective. Again, you need to be great at it, uh, and that's your advantage. But I mean, your disadvantage is that your global competitor has better access to financing or other things. So you really need to make sure you can overcompensate for that. I think clearly Marco Olivo has been an example yeah. of that. And many of the companies we invest in uh, try to follow that same path, not only to, to have large businesses, but, but those businesses where the fact that you are local and that you are operating from the local market gives you uh, an edge uh, there. Marcos, in, in your experience, what would you say is the biggest mistake that an entrepreneur in an emerging market can make? Uh, overspending, probably, okay. and not focusing on, on, on building a, a great product. What we've seen a lot is, is entrepreneurs imitating this model that you see a lot in, in, in developed markets where you have a lot of access to funds, mm -hmm. like, you know, stories like the ones we're reading in the newspapers now, we work for, to just to say one, or Uber, they've raised billions and billions of, uh, of capital. You know, it's, it's very rare that you can raise that much money in emerging markets. So, but at some point in time, there is a lot of liquidity in emerging markets, so people raise a lot of money in those points, in, uh, in those times, mm -hmm. and they, they try to recreate that strategy of, 
spending, and eventually we will figure out the business, and eventually we will figure out the product. Mm. And, uh, and I've, I've never seen one of those stories uh, succeed in the region. I've seen many, the entrepreneurs that we see succeeding are the ones that are very focused in the product, in the team. Obviously, when the opportunity comes to raise money, you try, you try to raise as much as you can, mm -hmm. uh, but then try to administer that, that capital well, because the, you know, the stories of raising a lot of money and funding deficits for many, many years uh, are very unlikely to succeed in, emer in emerging markets. Uh, the, window, the funding window always ends up closing at some, at some point in time. But now we have so many more of those success stories. So, you know, earlier we talked about how the landscape wasn't there when you guys first started, yeah. but now there is this huge culture of tech entrepreneurship and it's thriving in part due to the work that you all have done. Marcos, you're on the board of Endeavor Global, yep. focusing on long-term economic growth by working with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And Hernan, Kazakh Ventures' mission is to work with technology startups in Latin America. For those of us who are interested in building entrepreneurial and technology ecosystems in other parts of the world, or even parts of the US that have largely been ignored by the innovation train, what would you say are the foundational things that you've helped implement in Latin America that we need to focus on to foster innovation and impact in other parts of the world? I think having a, a success case is very important. I mean, I see what Mercado Libre has done for the region has been key because then many other entrepreneurs can say, hey, we're gonna be the next Mercado Libre and that, that, that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, uh, you know, and so, to, so try to build from a, a success story. I think that is very, very helpful, particularly if you are from a, from a region that is you know, not associated with, you know, with tech or with entrepreneurship. Uh, try, to, to try to create, I, I think Israel has done that, and now, now they have many, many, many success stories, but they started with one, and then another one, and first it was Waze, and then, you know, et cetera. But, uh, so try to start with one success case and, uh, and build from there. I think that's, I don't know, Arnan, if you yeah. want something. Uh, I think we, clearly the tech ecosystem in Latin America has evolved a, a lot. In our early days, there was nothing. We just took advantage of that small window when investment bankers wanted to provide some capital to startups. Uh, but then after that, there was a desert for many, many years. And then slowly but steadily, uh, opportunities started to, to appear. Uh, clearly, successful cases that can inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs is very important. I think that having a, a, a few investors that can really help those companies uh, take off with, with some advice is, is very, very useful. Obviously, you have to have the underlying tailwind of technology entering that market, maybe not at the most accelerated pace, and that was something I remember that used to happen in our early days. We're always growing at very fast rates, but never at 500, 1,000% per year. Uh, and during the initial days of our relationship with, with eBay that became for a time a shareholder of, of Mercado Libre, they were saying, they were looking at the typical charts and saying, hey, year one for eBay, year one for Mercado Libre, year two for eBay. And uh, during those years, we were growing much faster, they would say. Right. And I say, hey, this is, what we can, can do today because of infrastructure, because of internet penetration. But we think that we're going to have a much longer growth trajectory because up until you know, we reach the, the kind of uh, population, the penetration in population that we want, we, we, 
it'll take us longer, but we'll get there. And, and I think that at that time, people did not buy that, but that was what ended up happening. Margolia still today keeps on growing at amazing rates, uh, and all the other comparables grew much faster initially, but then they plateau, mm -hmm. uh, and that hasn't happened. So obviously, you need to have that underlying force uh, that, that is driving that ecosystem, and then be patient, because mm -hmm. uh, what everything we said happened, Maybe it happened uh, a little later versus what we, we thought. Now, I remember that you know, the business plan we, we put together for our uh, second round of financing uh, ended up happening. I still and have we, it, by the way. We, we, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we surpassed that big time, but, but probably five years later. Yeah. Mm. So I uh, need to make sure that, that again, you, you focus on, on, on the long run. And, but, but again, success cases, investors that can help you there. Uh, Marcos was mentioning regulation, at least regulation that doesn't kill you, mm. uh, it, it's important. I would add one more thing, which is a, a culture of giving back. And it's not just uh, money, but, but time. Mm. Um, I think uh, there's, there is this need of, of, you know, what did you do? What happened in your case? Uh, can you tell us your story? And I think that's something that, that we've, been, uh, we've been doing a lot of, and, and more people, other success, success stories as well in Latin America have been able to go back and, and, and tell their story. Obviously, in some cases, also financing uh, these ventures, which is great. We are going to wrap up with our infamous lightning round that I warned you about earlier. We're gonna do a special iteration. I'm going to list a couple of superlatives, and you will point to the person on your co-founding team to whom it most applies. You ready? This is, this is the first time that you do a panel, right? So this is the how, first how did you time. Do, how did you do this in the past? Well, most times it's just like easy this or that questions, but okay. I have to give you guys something special. Okay. <laughs> Least likely to be R.J. Miller. <laughs> most likely to schedule a call at 2 a.m. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> Most likely to know all the lyrics to Despacito. Mm, none of us. <laughs> <laughs> if, it was something, if it was something in Portuguese, maybe it would be me. Yeah. Fair enough. That was a crowdsourced one. Uh, Most likely to never miss a football game. Uh, watching or playing? Ooh, watching. I know. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, Hernan. Is it a tie? I used to like football a lot, but not any longer. So I still do. I still do. <laughs> okay, last one. You ready? Most likely to buy something from eBay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Nobody. I think that's the perfect answer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in ranking them. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Olidoyan Olodapo of the MBA class of 2020. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.